Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, speaks with Luke Bars, Global Head of Client Portfolio Management at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, about possible investment themes, such as the prospects of a global manufacturing shift away from Asia and how to gauge what investments are best positioned to thrive in a changing environment. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This is a continuation of the kind of back to school, although we're all long back to school now, happily, unfortunately, whatever one you want to choose it. But what we're doing is we're bringing in a number of the investment experts that we can bring to bear on your behalf from outside of Barclays and around the street to really give you a sense of what's out there and some of the sort of expertise and specialism that lies within. This week, you'll have heard we've got Luke. Thank you very much, Luke. Just quickly beforehand, so a couple of things that have just been going on in markets just to sort of bring your your attention to them. I mean, I guess one point of um, sort of growing interest is there's a bit of a focus on a sort of speed bump or potential speed bump ahead for the US economy. This is the uh, sort of recommencing student loan repayments on among a number of things, uh, which you might see start to sort of slow economic growth into the end of the year. Now, the interesting thing, I think, is how that will be interpreted in the context of a monetary headwind, which we're still really waiting to see materially uh, in the US economy. So how will people interpret this in market terms? Um, Oil also continues to be uh, kind of front and centre, given that oil prices continue to creep up. And that is obviously giving certain economies uh, or certain central bankers a bit more of a headache, certain central bankers and bond markets a bit more of a headache than others. And actually, um, if you're really geeky and really want to go deep, you can look at an IMF study that was published on Friday, looking at 100 inflation shocks and the seven stylized facts therein. One of them, if you want to freak yourself out a bit, was uh, that most unresolved inflation crises or episodes involved premature celebrations. So be careful of uh, celebrating ahead of time. There's a number of reasons for that. But anyway, let's get into the conversation. I think it's much more interesting. And we can, um, we've obviously got the, uh, the word on the street later in the week. But Luke, and I'm sorry for that. Elongated introduction. Welcome to the podcast. Please can we start by just sort of getting a bit more on what you do? What's your day job? Absolutely. Yeah. So firstly, Will, thank you for having me. Pleasure. As context, I lead what's called fundamental equity client portfolio management at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. So just to put some context around what that means, we are a $350 billion equity asset manager. Within that, $110 billion is run fundamentally. In other words, picking individual stocks, managing portfolios on behalf of our institutional third party and private high net worth clients. At this point, we have 100, give or take 120 people around the world based in what we see as the key jurisdictions from an equity market investment perspective. And that team averages around 16 years of experience trying to find the right ideas to invest in on behalf of our clients. It's a lot of gray hair, I'd imagine, over the last few years anyway. And and within that sort of, you know, one of the things that I guess is, is you've been focusing on a bit has been sort of the supply chain story and some of the sort of changes that we're seeing with the regards to the world economy and how it appears again to be changing under our feet. Tell me a little bit about that, if you would, or tell us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So taking one step back, one of the things that we have always emphasized in our investment philosophy and approach is to be long term minded. Mm -hmm. If we look across equity markets, a lot of the inefficiency, which inherently as an active manager, as a stock picker is what you're trying to exploit to outperform market and benchmark. Mm -hmm. A lot of that short term inefficiency has been arbitraged away. High frequency, quantitative techniques, 
really mean that's a very challenging discipline to try and hit on every single next quarterly print. Mm. As a fundamental manager, if we look over the next three, five, even 10 years, we have a lot more ability to see through the noise and generate meaningful returns and outperformance for our clients. Now, one of the trends that we have observed, and this is both observationally from our investment teams around the world, but also from company management teams engaging with us on what their future strategy is, is the realignment of supply chains, especially in areas of critical necessity. So let's just think of the reasons for that. Well, one, you had this shock through COVID, mm -hmm. which for a lot of businesses, and let's just put a number around it, roughly 80% of businesses engaged in the manufacturing space felt some disruption to supply chain. Yep. And so rethinking that supply chain strategy post-COVID is a crucial part of the forward-looking strategy. Now that is amplified and exacerbated by some of the political tensions we've seen in the last few years, specifically the emergence of a, a tighter and, and more challenged political relationship between the US, the West and China. And so it's that China plus one strategy of corporates wanting to at a minimum diversify supply chain. So they're not just centered on one market and moving from just-in-time supply to just-in-case supply, mm -hmm. but then also in areas of critical necessity, repatriation of supply chains. And one of the areas we've really focused on is technology supply chains. Semiconductors, and we can talk about this in more detail, is a foundational technology to almost every major innovation theme we're discussing, whether it's AI, cybersecurity, a lot of what's happening in EV and, and autonomous driving. And at this point, the world is reliant on one country, one company at the front end of that curve. 92% of global supply of what's called five nano leading edge semiconductors produced in Taiwan. And so how do you rethink that supply chain? How do you repatriate some of that supply to home markets, or at least to, let's call them friendly partners that you can have more conviction in over the long term, is a very critical part of that longer term dynamic. That's so interesting. And, and we've been talking, as it goes, we've been talking a lot about this on this podcast and writing a lot about it, like like many others have. Before I get into that, so just, just to explain a little bit. So when we talk about inefficiency here in markets, we're talking about the idea that there are bits to exploit in prices. So all, you know, the idea that uh, market prices, the price of, you know, whatever stock you're interested in reflects not just all the uh, information that is available in the newspaper, all the stuff you're chatting about in the pubs and the cafes, but also some, a degree of sort of rational expectations about what comes. So that's kind of what Luke and his experts are trying to get on top of is that idea that there might be disconnects to exploit over a slightly longer time frame. But with regards to what you just said, Luke, I'm really interested, I guess, in the trade-off because we're going through this inflationary episode right now and it's painful, mm -hmm. you know, cost of living crisis in various countries. Now, what you're talking about there is going to have impact on prices that consumers pay because part of that efficiency surely you know the global idea the search for efficiency mm -hmm. uh, and reorganizing supply chains along those lines if we go a little bit less down that route that means inflation so where's the sort of pain thresholds here do you think there's a sort of you know national security is one thing but also first and foremost absolutely agree with your your statement we think the risk in what's happening with supply chain restructuring is you have had 30 years of cost compression as you've outsourced supply, especially into Asia and China, which has been positive for margins for corporate equity. And now you're in a dynamic where you're trying to repatriate often to higher cost markets, mm -hmm. whether it's even home market or actually some near shoring, there's still going to be a cost impact of that. And so the, the negative or, or bearish case for this is you could be in a scenario which is highly likely for the next five, 10 years of perpetually stickier inflation, mm. not necessarily the levels we've seen in the last 12 to 18 months, but not the zero to 1% inflation that we saw for maybe the last five, 10 years. So that means that from an interest rate perspective, 
equilibrium interest rates, expectations around what that's going to look like for the next five to 10 years probably need to be adjusted higher mm -hmm. than we've seen over the last decade. That obviously then has some bearing on cost of capital. It has some bearing on the profitability dynamics of individual businesses. And so I think the headline here is we do think at an aggregate market level, the forward looking prospects for risk assets are more muted than we've seen over the last decade. Valuations yeah. down, basically. Yes. Valuations down, access to capital more challenged, financial conditions tighter. And so that environment is net-net more challenging at the aggregate than what we've had in the last decade. Mm -hmm. Now, what we're trying to explore and exploit is that as much as that might be the aggregate picture, within that there's huge heterogeneity in terms of what's yeah. actually happening. And just because we're repatriating supply chain potentially to higher cost base, doesn't mean there aren't beneficiaries of that trend. Yeah. So let's think about semiconductors again, just to go into context. Mm. US through US Chips Act is putting $100 billion, both in terms of corporate CapEx and government fiscal spending into rebuilding supply chain capacity in the US. Now, it is unclear at this point whether that's going to be US legacy chip manufacturers being able to catch up with the TSMCs of this world, or whether TSMC, who are building for what it's worth, fabrication facilities in Arizona onshore mm. in the US, maintaining market share but from that US onshore base, or if we're just gonna see a complete restructuring that supply chain globally, there are still gonna be businesses in the picks and shovels component. Who are the beneficiaries on the construction side of things, yeah. on the automation technology side of things, that as you bring supply back into more expensive, high cost, developed market economies are going to get heavy investment. And so I'd say just two points on that. One, automation technologies in the manufacturing space that reduce the dependency or propensity of labor needed to continue to manufacture those high-end components and technologies. And then productivity enhancing software mm -hmm. are the two areas that in a higher inflationary environment, we still see huge opportunity for those that have unique capability because that's still going to be a deflationary investment for many companies. And so the companies that can exploit that outset and actually benefit from that capital investment should be very well placed going forward. Super interesting. And one of the things I, you know, we've all been following, I think, is the, just how difficult it has been to create the fab conditions, to use a phrase, back in America, mm -hmm. that actually you know, the conditions on, uh, under which these leading edge microchips are manufactured is very hard to replicate very easily. And the construction, I mean, your story is, I mean, it's, it's amazing what you're seeing. If you look at there's I think there's a chart from, I can't remember which US Statistical Bureau, but showing, you know, factory construction in the US across states, broadly across mm -hmm. states. So you are seeing this kind of happen. Absolutely. But the interesting thing is just sort of how quickly it'll come and what it means for ultimate consumption. Well, I can only give you anecdotal context, but our investment teams, both US technology analysts that we have based out in, in New York, as well as our China and Hong Kong based investment teams who have spent considerable time in Taiwan with TSMC management looking at facilities. It's akin to Alkabi in terms of what they're doing in many yes. ways. And so how do you actually extrapolate that or export it somewhere else and replicate? It is a large unknown, mm -hmm. but I think it is something politically and economically that is crucial for the West to solve for mm -hmm. because that dependency risk that's associated with supply coming from Taiwan is something that's increasingly less palatable. Yeah, it's interesting. And it shows again, I guess, and this is one of the arguments at the moment that we've been sort of having on this podcast, which is that in a sense, when you look at market prices, market prices don't care about a lot of the things that we might care about, you know, as Luke mentioned, strategic security or the military industrial complex having to rely on a country that might be invaded, or indeed sort of, you know, some of the environmental considerations that we're sort of, you know, that policymakers are currently grappling with. So you mentioned a couple of investment ideas that sort of come off the back of those kind of long-term strategic thoughts and insights about how the economy might be evolving and how policy mm -hmm. context might be evolving. 
I guess one of the interesting things would be how do you benchmark performance? You know, one of the difficulties that every investor has is if I pick this stock or this fund or that sector, how do I know that I've got the right investment and how do you judge performance um, of your investment of teams? Yeah, it's, it's a very fair question. So looking at it from an institutional landscape, we, we have benchmarks mm -hmm. that all of our strategies will be associated with. And so if we're running, for example, US large cap equity, S&P 500 is our natural point of reference. Yep. Can we pick stocks within the context of US large cap equity that will deliver better return over a market cycle on both an absolute and risk adjusted basis relative to the market? Yep. Now you can obviously extrapolate that into if it's global equities, MSCI world, if it's emerging market equities, MSCI emerging markets. That is largely how the institutional landscape has evolved where those are your reference points. I think where it gets a little bit more complicated is when you try to carve out a portion of your overall portfolio, specifically your equity portfolio, to target some of those longer term themes. So rather than saying, look, I'm going to entrust a manager to invest in global equities and identify some of these longer term themes, buy individual stocks associated with them, and then outperform market over that full cycle, I want to make a deliberate allocation to supply chain security mm -hmm. and the beneficiaries of that, or biotechnology and what's happening in the genomics precision medicine space. Now, in that context, there aren't perfect benchmarks to reference performance against. There's some good proxies you can use, but the way I would always emphasize investors think about it is your starting decision is to take capital out of core equities mm -hmm. and allocate it to that long-term thematic or long-term secular growth theme. Mm -hmm. And so in that context, the theme has to deliver value versus core equities. In other words, if I decide to invest in beneficiaries of supply chain security, are those beneficiaries of supply chain security actually outperforming generic equities over a market cycle? Mm -hmm. And then has my manager been able to pick the right stocks within that to deliver incrementally higher performance yes. than just what that, let's call it quasi-passive exposure could be? So it's not a perfect right. representation, but it's a way Almost of us thinking is, about, exactly. It's a way of us thinking about adjudicating on the performance of our individual analysts and our overall portfolio management teams. And I think importantly, as you run an investment organization, and I said earlier, we have 110 people around the world, eight different jurisdictions and geographies. What's absolutely crucial within that is you, you build a performance-based culture. And so your incentivization structure for those analysts has to be their ability to identify the right companies that outperform over the market cycle, drive their individual and overall team success. Within that, one other sort of question that I guess is sort of related. Uh, and one of the sort of concerns that I've had sort of with regards to thematic investing over some time is the more appealing, the more obvious the theme, the more likely it is to be exploited more broadly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether it's kind of, you know, you look at whatever trends really hit some kind of narrative benchmark and gather some sort of, you know, or manage to gather some sort of collective imagination. That is more likely to be ones that people feel comfortable investing in. So AI is a good example right mm -hmm. now, but there are loads of others, these kind of mega themes. And I often think that when I look at those, how would I avoid the hype? And we get yeah. back to that kind of measurement yeah. issue again, but are there any things that you can sort of tell us about how you avoid kind of overhyped themes? It's not easy, but it's something we spend a lot of time thinking about. So we've, for context, we've built out a thematic platform over the last decade mm -hmm. where alongside our core equity solutions and strategies, we try to identify those long-term themes and manage portfolios specifically targeting the beneficiaries of those themes. Now, what's crucial for us is that, or at least underpinning the evolution of one of those new strategies is the insight we're garnering from the companies we're engaging with that we're investing in, mm -hmm. in our core portfolios. So let me give you a simple case and point. So we launched 
now almost nine years ago, a millennials equity strategy. The logic there was we were going to invest in beneficiaries of a younger generational consumer. So the misnomer at the time was you had this younger cohort who didn't really want to work post financial crisis, um, coming into the employment world that didn't have disposable income, living at home with parents, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, what we saw was the world's largest demographic cohort moving into peak income years, 90% of which was in Asia, where you've had this acceleration in wealth over the, the last generation with very distinct behaviors relative to previous generation. In other words, digital natives, so gr mm. grew up with technology, comfortable using technology in the way they spend money, but also a strong preference for experiences over physical product. Mm -hmm. And so that observation was not something we necessarily observed at a macro level. It was something we heard from a huge number of companies we were investing in, where retail and consumer businesses were saying, for us to be successful over the next 10 years, we have to align our strategy to that younger generational consumer? Do we have an online presence to complement our offline presence? Mm -hmm. Are our brand values aligned to some of the, for example, sustainability preferences of that younger generation? And so when you hear that a multitude of different times and then can validate that with what you see at the macro level in terms of the size of that demographic cohort, the incremental wealth and spending power that group is gonna have as they move through peaking up years, gives you justification for this could be something very exciting. Mm -hmm. There's then obviously a secondary part of it, which is if all of that is true, but there's only a handful of companies that really play that theme, it's not a good investment product. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, maybe invest in a couple of those businesses in the context of your overall equity, but asking someone to invest in a standalone solution where the depth and breadth of that opportunity set in public markets is limited is not gonna be a good outcome. So the one we've always had, at least for much of the last five years, has been how do you invest in space as a thematic mm -hmm. in public markets? Fantastically interesting, huge growth opportunity, but that is very much dominated by private market businesses, and to a degree, some of the traditional military defense businesses that have technologies that can be utilized in that same context. And so that for us, whilst interesting as a thematic, is not an investable thematic until yeah. that universe broadens and deepens. So there's always that iterative approach where are we hearing and seeing things at the bottom up company level that give us confidence and conviction that this could be something that's exciting? Is the investable universe of companies benefiting from that theme wide enough for us to still build a diversified and robust portfolio? And then there's the final part, which is the same as we would have in any of our portfolios, which is how are we applying a rigorous bottom-up valuation-driven investment philosophy that means you're not just investing in overhyped, high multiple businesses, where even if the long-term demand tailwinds come through, won't generate return for investors because the starting point is too, too elevated. And when you think about just Again, a, a similar-ish theme, but when you're thinking about, um, because you can't have perfect foresight of the big themes that are going to dominate for the next 10 years, none of us happily can. So how do you weed out you know, the themes that you identify, mm -hmm. but actually they don't turn out to have any substance? What's the process by which you turn around and say, actually, this isn't doing what we thought it would, and it's not garnering the investment. It doesn't seem that the future has taken a different turn to the one we identified a year or two ago. I think the crucial part of that for us is what is the viability of the businesses mm -hmm. that we see engaged in that space? Right. So do you have businesses that can stand on their own two feet, that are benefiting from that long-term demand tailwind, but also profitable in their own right? That doesn't mean you aren't willing to take long-term view on businesses that can scale and be profitable, mm -hmm. but we have to recognize we're in an environment now where free access to capital is gone. You can't have a business strategy that is, give me 10 years to build scale and then I'll think about becoming profitable. There has to be something that is a going concern and can deliver value and return to investors through the forward cycle. Mm -hmm. And so that bottom-up 
perspective is crucial. That is inherent within our philosophy. It's the reason we have, as I said, 110 people around the world, because going through balance sheet, going through income statement, understanding what is the forward strategy of that business, and then what that means at the bottom line for those investments you're gonna make is really crucial to backing into, have I identified an investable fee? Mm-hmm. And I think the things I take from all of that, if you'll forgive me, Luke, is that, you know, just again, that ability to have people talking to the companies, examining them in forensic detail, getting that feedback mechanism and also just knowing the companies inside out, which is not not available to all of us, let's say. Final two quick questions. Uh, we ask all our guests this. What, what are you most, we'll start off with what you're most worried about, and then we can have what you're most excited about afterwards. One thing on each. Well, so most worried about uh, England's performance in the Rugby World Cup so far has not been... <laughs> hugely positive though we're in good footing so far yeah, so let, let's momentum see where we get to. is key in world fingers cups crossed. as an investing you know? fingers crossed i think more specifically equity markets especially in u.s large cap space have had a very good run at the beginning of this year mm-hmm. now we were of the view coming into 2023 that valuations especially in some of the higher growth higher quality parts of the the u.s ecosystem had reduced far too significantly based on the co- the underlying quality of fundamentals yeah we have to be sensitive around valuations. We're having to be very thoughtful around how do we take profit in some of those businesses, reallocate capital to some of those names that haven't necessarily done quite as well. At the same time, it's trying to make sure we, we maintain balance in our portfolios because we saw through 2022, the challenge you can have in portfolios if they're biased towards subcomponents of the overall market, biased towards just parts of the overall landscape that aren't necessarily beneficiaries in that short period of high inflation, higher commodity prices, et cetera. Okay, interesting. And what about uh, the thing you are most excited about? And so I'm going to go slightly slightly off the discussion we've had thus far, though there are related parts to it, but India is the market that on a 10-year view, we are extremely excited about. You've had 10 years of significant structural reform in India that has changed tax code, reduced bureaucracy, increased ease of doing business, changed bankruptcy laws, and has put Indian corporates in a place where if macro outlook, which could easily be a high single digit real GDP growth economy, mid-teens nominal GDP growth economy for much of the next decade comes through, these are companies that can really translate that growth into underlying earnings. And linking it to what we said at the outset, one of the interesting observations is as companies think through their China plus one strategy, especially Western corporates, in that high-end technology hardware manufacture, India is becoming a key source of focus for them. So not pulling out of China in totality, but how do I think about investing and diversifying that supply chain into areas that I feel are strong strategic partners, but still have that cost competitive advantage. It means India will follow a slightly different path to China. China's path was enter into WTO, become light manufacturing export of the world, grow middle income wealth and, and economy as you brought people out of agriculture into manufacturing. India probably won't follow that path because Manufacturing is now so heavily automated and less labor dependent than it was previously. But because they're going to leapfrog that light manufacturing component, go straight in for high-end, high-value-add, technologically hardware component manufacture, actually what you can do is you build a services economy and a domestic demand-driven economy around that Mm -hmm. that could be hugely exciting for longer-term investors. Super interesting. A reminder to, to be globally diversified and have the world working on your behalf, on the behalf of your savings, not just some recently successful part of it. I think that's it for today. Thank you, Luke, for joining us. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you all again. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.